So joining our series on this episode is Kim Williams, AM legendary Australian businessman who has led some of the country's largest media and entertainment businesses, including News Corp Australia, Foxtel and Southern Star Entertainment. Kim, pleasure having you as a guest on our series. I, I want to begin with the media landscape here in Australia, which has obviously changed drastically over the past decade or two. What's your reading on how it's changed and, and the significance of these changes? Well, I think the Australian media is subject to exactly the same forces that are confronting media in all of the OECD nations. Fragmentation is the order of the day. Specialisation continues to make a, a marked impact on, on media. And of course, with digital technology, um, the value of advertising has significantly diminished. There's been a, a, an ongoing debate, as you'd be aware of, for, for a long, long time as to the future of print media via the, the unstoppable rise of digital media. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this debate and, and whether you think that print media still has a, a place in the future. Look, I don't think media is ever about the technology in which editorial information is presented. It's really about the quality of the information. So I have no particular enthusiasm or opposition to any one technology. I think the public determine these things in the main. Um, personally, I think print has a very limited future in news media, uh, if any. Um, in, I can see some applications with certain specialist magazine publications like The Economist, although The Economist has become a very strong digital innovator. Um, but generally, I can't see much of a future for print media. But that's not against... I don't say that against print. I just think the public has, doesn't have much enthusiasm for lots of piles of old dead trees. Obviously, the rise of streaming services has had a, a direct impact on the profitability and, and customer base of satellite television. How have you seen this dynamic play out and, and to what extent do you think satellite TV companies are, are defending themselves to the threat of streaming services? Look, I, I think anyone who's in a legacy business like um, subscription television is in a very difficult place because most of their market has been repriced and so they've had to completely reinvent their business and reinvent their service delivery. I think the judgment is still out on how companies weather that storm and, and, and come through on the other side with profitable, sustainable businesses. I think there are signs that some companies are doing it really very well. Um, I personally think that Patrick Delaney at Foxtel is doing a good job in that process in Australia and his correspondent um, colleagues over in Britain, or former colleagues in Britain at Sky have done a really remarkable job. Further to that, in particular with, with regard to broadcast or, or sporting broadcast rights, what, what impact have they had, do you think? Are they, uh, these streaming services, increasing the price that traditional media companies are having to pay? Again, I, I think the judgment is out on, on where value lands on sporting rights. We all know that sporting rights have demonstrable mega value. As to whether that value continues to rise in response to the incursion of new technology and, and delivery um, methodologies is yet to be proven. Um, I tend to be a bit of a pessimist on that, personally. 
um, I don't think that the existing subscription broadcast and, and traditional broadcast players have the kind of revenues to play with that they used to. And I think streaming platforms have not given much of an indication of really spending up big to compete with open broadcasting. Sticking with the, the media theme, what, what impact do you think the media has had on the broader public policy debate here in Australia? Politicians obviously always complain about the 24-7 media. Is that, is that having a major impact in, in determining what the issues are that, that you see on the television each night? Look, I, I think television and radio will always be enormously powerful mediums for public opinion and for registration of the direction of, of public sentiment. Um, and I think they will probably continue permanently as enormously influential media on political life in our nation and in other nations. Print media tends to have a much more limited impact than it used to have. Um, not that it isn't without a surfeit of extremely colourful and assertive opinion, but I think it increasingly doesn't really matter that much to the public. Before we move on, you've been a, a patron of the arts and for the arts for many decades. Take me through the effect the past two years has had on Australia's standing in, in terms of the global arts and music scenes and, and what does the recovery over the next one, three, five years look like? Gee, they're tough times and many of my colleagues in the performing arts and in the, the, um, the related arts in literature and, and areas like that have had a really, really difficult time and had the rug pulled out from under them. And not just pulled out from under them, but pulled out from under them by government, um, where government did not extend JobKeeper to most of the people who work in the performing arts. Actors, for example, didn't qualify unless they were in permanent employment. Well, guess what? Actors don't have permanent employment. Um, so it was pretty unhelpful. The performing arts have a long way to go to recover and incomes have been smashed. The economics of a lot of the performing arts have been seriously challenged. Whilst there have been some terrifically generous donors that have stepped up to the plate, it's going to take some time to rebuild. What is encouraging is that audiences stepped up in donating tickets that they'd already purchased as donations to the companies, which bridge some of the gap but there's a long way to travel. The, it's been bruising. I want to get an understanding of Kim Williams, the person. As I understand it, you grew up in, in Sydney's northern suburbs and had an early interest in talent within the field of music in particular. Talk to me about your upbringing, if you could, and, and some of the early experiences and exposure that you had to studying music. Well, I, I, I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney, actually, um, and went to a public high school in a suburb called Ermington which is um, on the way to Parramatta. It's two suburbs, I think, before Parramatta. Um, Parramatta, of course, being the largest city outside the city of Sydney in, in the west of Sydney, which a lot of Melbournians are not very familiar with. Um, and I, um, I was fortunate enough, the public school I went to had a really brilliant music teacher. Uh, his name was Richard Gill. Uh, he became a much celebrated conductor. He was, in fact, the music director of the, the re-established um, Victorian opera um, about, what, 12 years ago. 
and um, he, he was a terrific energy force field in music education, in orchestral music, in, in operatic performance, and in a wide variety of, of other areas. He was even a great star of Spicks and Specs mm -hmm. on the ABC. Um, so Richard was my teacher, and um, he imbued me with a deep, deep love of music, and I pursued a career as a musician for, for quite a long time. You studied composition and music administration at the University of Sydney on a Commonwealth scholarship. You previously said that much of what I know about life and management I learned from music. Walk me through these early days, in particular Kim Williams as a student and, and composing music, which you were quite prolific at during those years. Well, I, back, in, back in the 1960s and 70s, it was very much a do-it-yourself era. Um, the, the kind of, of largesse that we see from a diversity of sources in financing creative life now uh, didn't really exist then. I mean, Gough Whitlam started that, that, that cavalcade and invested heavily in the performing arts particularly, and in, and in the, I might say, in fairness to him, the visual arts and the literary arts. But we all basically had to make it up as we went along, and so it was a terrific training ground for me a training ground in management, a training ground actually in learning about profit and loss <laughs> statements and balance sheets and all sorts of things that um, I would once have thought would be a preposterous territory of knowledge for, 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 for a, a clarinetist and composer. But um, learn it I did because learn it I had to. Uh, so that I, I had a terrific opportunity from a variety of different experiences to become a a kind of, of jack-of-all-trades in the, the, the early um, rebirthing of creative, um, creative activity in the performing arts, in, in music particularly in the 1970s. And I understand from there you transitioned into organising and running major events and, and music festivals. Take me through this period of your life in that 19, late 1970s sort of era and, and obviously not just composing music but, but running some of those festivals? Well, well, I ran a couple of festivals with Roger Woodward. Um, Roger is a great Australian pianist. He's now resident in the, on the west coast of, um, of America. Um, but in those days, Roger was, was um, based in, in Europe and, and enjoyed a terrifically um, big career and did a lot of recordings with a variety of different record companies, EMI and RCA and, and, and others. And we ran a music festival in Sydney called Rostrum. And um, we brought to Australia a number of very prominent performers and composers of that time, including the great Italian composer Luciano Berio and his former wife, um, Cathy Barbarian, who was the most famous uh, mezzo-soprano of the t middle 20th century, who had virtually every famous composer in the world. Um, write original music for her. And they both invited me to go back and work with them in Italy, which I did. Um, so I, I left Rostrum and went off to Italy to, um, to study and work with them um, in a variety of different roles. From here and in the 1980s, you became general manager of Musica Viva, one of the largest chamber music groups in the world before taking on the role of Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Film Commission. This then, as I understand it, led to an executive role with Southern Star Entertainment and, and then your future in, in film and television commenced. Reflecting on this pivotal decade in your life, talk to me about some of the, the seminal moments of, of the 1980s for you. 
Well, I, I, I ran Music of I was given the opportunity to run Music of Evil when I came back from, from Italy. Um, and that was a very important period for growth in, of Music of Eva, and I, I had a tolerant chair in Ken Tribe who enabled me to be quite entrepreneurial. And, um, and from that, I was invited to um, interview for the position of Chief Executive of the Australian Film Commission, and um, I was successful in, in that process. And then I, I was thrown into all the turbulence of change in the way in which film and television um, productions were financed in Australia. Um, High-end television drama and feature films and documentaries at that time were financed through some pretty imaginative taxation arrangements which had become the centre of a, of, a, of a tax manipulation industry. And there was a lot of pretty strange behaviour happening, which was not really the intention of the government. So um, Paul Keating said to me, listen, you better figure out something different because this crap is going to stop. And um, he made it very clear. And we, we lived through the taxation summit and kept the incentive arrangements for a, a, a little burst of life after the taxation summit of 1985. But I set about with some colleagues developing alternative modes of financing and we came up with a thing called the Australian Film Finance Corporation. And um, Keating insisted that I chair that, um, which was not part of the plan. Um, I wanted to go off and work in, in the private sector in setting up Southern Star with Neil Balnose. And, um, I, um, anyway, cut a long story short, I did chair the Finance Corporation for, for its initial period. Um, it went on for a 20-year life and was a very, very valuable component in the, the architecture of film, film, feature film financing and high-end television drama and documentary. Uh, and I went to Southern Star, I set up Southern Star Entertainment, which was the production division, and um, worked with people like Hal McElroy and John Edwards and Sandra Levy um, and Errol Sullivan um, and, um, and some, some other people at that time. And we did a lot of really big production. We, did, we were the largest external supplier from Britain to the BBC. Um, we produced original Australian dramas for HBO. In fact, the first big miniseries for HBO was written by David Williamson and produced by Hal McElroy. It was called A Dangerous Life and was about the, the assassination of Benigno Aquino and the rise of Corazon Aquino and the collapse of the Marcos regime. And that was a, that was a really major moment in Australian um, television history, although it's not, it's not well remembered. Australians are not good at their, even their recent history, let alone their distant history. Um, but that was a, that was a great privilege. And, and Hal, Hal went on to do some other really groundbreaking dramas for big American networks. Um, he produced for the Turner Network Television, TNT, which was what was called a superstation, um, a, a terrific show called Which Way Home. Um, which starred um, um, Sybil Shepherd, and um, that was that was a terrific piece of work. Um, and he did many, many, many other remarkable things. Of course, he went on to to produce Blue Heelers and 
and Murder Call and um, Patrol Boat and all of those programs which were such big successes in the, the 1990s and, um, and 2000s. I want to fast forward through to some of your biggest achievements and career highlights. You commenced at Foxtel in 2001 as CEO and, and led that company for 10 years. Before we get into what it's like running Foxtel, how did you end up at, as Foxtel CEO? Well, I'd set up um, the film studios in Sydney, which are called Fox Studios Australia. Um, and I, I'd done that um, at the invitation of Peter Chernin, who was the then head of 20th Century Fox in Los Angeles. Um, with Rupert Murdoch's um, agreement, I'd, I'd flown over to meet with Peter and, and Rupert in Los, Los Angeles. And um, that, I'd done that for about six and a half years, and it, it had been a very, very difficult project. And I'd gone in to invest a lot in original Australian um, work. I, I had some, some tensions with colleagues in Los Angeles who didn't particularly like this outlier in, in Sydney, Australia, um, being a promoter of original work in Australia. And whilst they didn't even like it when I persuaded George Lucas to come out to Australia and produce the last two Star Wars pictures that he, um, that he made in the, in the prequel series, because, you know, Star Wars started with episode four, five and six, and then George had made episode one, which he'd done off in, in Morocco and, and at, at um, Pinewood in the UK. And I went over to the US to see Rick McCallum, who was George's producer, and to meet with George, and went up to San Francisco to go and visit them at the, um, at the ranch, where George has this magical place for filmmaking. And... Um, I persuaded him initially to come and have a look at the studio we'd built, and then when he saw it, I said, so what's the answer, George? He said, the answer's yes. You better find me a nice house, wow. <laughs> which we did. And he made episodes two and episodes three in Sydney, and we had a, a really terrific time, and a lot of my colleagues were, I think, a bit, a bit shitty about it. <laughs> Anyway, so I, I, I said to, to Peter and to Lachlan Murdoch, um, look, no hard feelings, but I'm going to move on. It's, you know, I've delivered the studio, and it was delivered through a lot of public opposition. It was people, people had their grumpy pants on for a long time. All the residents were very difficult and very self-interested. It was a classic example of, of um, NIMBY 2, you know, now it's my backyard. <laughs> Um, because the site that we inherited was the old site for the Royal Easter Show in Sydney. It was hardly a site of, of you know, peace and tranquility as, a, as an operational site, but people behaved as if it was, in fact, a, a verdant meadow rather than a very active place next door to the Sydney Cricket Ground. Um, so... Lachlan said, well, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. And he said, I don't, I don't think my dad's so sure about that. And I said, what do you mean? I mean, it's my life. Uh, anyway, he flew out to see me, very, very generously, he flew out to see me in Sydney the, um, the next day. And um, he said, look, is there no job that you would want to do? And I said, well, look, from the outside, I don't think Foxtel is travelling very well. I think I could probably fix that up for you. 
And um, he said, well, let me get back to you on that. And um, he rang me and said, yeah, the job's yours. And I imagine he wanted to chat to his dad. And uh, some weeks went by and nothing happened. So I rang Lachlan up and I said, look, Lachlan, no hard feelings, but I am literally leaving. <laughs> and he said, no, you're not. <laughs> and within a couple of minutes, um, a colleague of mine at the uh, headquarters rang me and said, um, uh, you're in the job and you're starting now and you need to get over to the management because I've just told them and you better go and address them and you better get down to Melbourne tomorrow to see Ziggy Switkowski because he's massively pissed off at the way in which this has been done. I said, but that's not my fault. And he said, I know that, but you're going to have to fix it up. So I did all of the above, and um, the Z fortunately Ziggy and I had known each other for a, a long time, and um, we, we sorted matters through. And I found out that Foxtel was, and this was back in 2001, Foxtel was losing about three and three quarter million dollars a week. And uh, that was pretty confronting. That's a lot of money. This was in 2001 dollars, you know, 21 years ago. Anyway, within four years, we'd made the company go digital. We'd renegotiated all of the um, content contracts. We'd gathered some really great fresh sports content, particularly with AFL, and I developed a very, a very close professional relationship with. Um, with a number of people at the AFL and, and worked very hard to, to dramatically improve what we did in our delivery for the AFL. And um, we broke even in 2005. In fact, um, I was one of the last people to speak with Kerry Packer and he, uh, he said, son, they tell me that you've actually made it break even. And I said, yeah, yeah, in fact, the report that you'll get... I didn't know that he was on his deathbed, but he was very loquacious that day. He just wanted to talk and talk. And we'd actually just signed a deal on the AFL. And um, he, uh, he said, um, yeah, so they, they... He said, I never thought it would happen. He said, I always thought you were like the airlines, you know? They always lose money, but they keep on operating. And we laughed, and, that, and he died two days later. Um, I mean, I subsequently learned that he was really not well, and someone had suggested that I give him a call and said, look, he doesn't look too good, but I didn't realise it was as grave as it, as it, as it was. Anyway, but when I left Foxtel, um, it was making just under um, $20 million a week. So um, it, it was quite a big turnaround that we'd went through, and that was a great privilege. It was a, an enormously rich learning experience. Um, and I'll be um, forever grateful to colleagues at the News Corporation and at uh, Telstra for the opportunity they gave me to, to actually run that business, put together a terrific management team, and, um, and really work very... I've never worked harder in my life, but work to make a really good functioning business. And how did you engineer that turnaround? Over those initial three to four years, from from losing three three, you know, over three million dollars a week to then making 
or turning over $20 million a week. Three and three-quarter million. Three quarters, Almost $4 million a week. <laughs> so how do you go about that? How do you engineer a transformation of that scale? I, I, you, can, you can't punish people into reimagining a business. And you, punitive responses never work in the... And you can't cut your way to success. What we did was to reimagine the business and establish entirely new operational goals. And the reimagining of the business was built around three things. It was built around changing most of the management. Um, I think I fired 80% of the management. It was built and, and, and gave a new sense of energy and direction to the business because the, the company had got into the worst possible thing that can ever happen with a business. It had got used to losing money. You must never get used to losing money, as if that's in the natural order of things. Not on. Second, we reimagined the content offering, so we took the, we took the business through digital technology um, from a 46-channel service to a 130-channel service um, with a fabulous new digital um, electronic program guide um, with a product roadmap that, that stretched out um, with digital video recorders and, and other things that, 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 that kept... We added new things all the time. And we created, third, this sense of constant investment in innovation. Don't talk about it, make it happen. And so we invested in original Australian content, we invested in original technology, um, we were the first broadcaster in the world to put television onto, onto telephones. Um, Sol Trujillo had come into Telstra and he, he called me to a top secret meeting um, where we memorably ate Subway sandwiches because Sol was addicted to fast food. Um, and he said, do you think you can find a way to... Um, we're going to roll out this 3G phone network and um, I'd like to put a television service on it, but I don't... And I said, you know, we've already got one in development. When do you want it? And this was in about June. He said, how's November? <laughs> and I said, done. We shook hands. And um, we, when, when the 3G Telstra service went out, again, this is a piece of history no-one remembers anymore, we deployed a whole Foxtel service on the phone. And if you've got a Telstra phone, you've got Foxtel with it. It, it actually came with Foxtel. Um, and of course, that, that included coming with the AFL and coming with the NRL. Uh, and th these were world firsts. Um, I, I don't think we were ever very good at singing our own song in that way, because I have a natural allergy to that sort of thing. Um, I'm much more about, you know, what's next? You know, let's keep going. And we, we put television into Virgin Plains and we did a whole bunch of, 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 of stuff that really changed the landscape and it made Foxtel the, um, synonymous with, with, with innovative television. And how significant was the, the sporting component, do you think, of that rise as well? Oh, sport's fundamental. Yeah. Sport is fundamental to, to television. I mean, it is the, the, the thing that television does best. And nothing comes close to what television can do in sport. And it, it does wonderful things for sport. It does great things for fans. 
It does great things for understanding the, the, the whole chemistry of a game. Um, I think televisions have been a, in, in recent years has really stepped up to the mark in just constantly innovating with television sport for Australians. So following a decade at Foxhell, you then became CEO of News Corp Australia in late 2011, a role you held for close to two years. Walk me through your ascension to CEO of News Corp Australia and then what was your focus? Well, um, R Rupert was, was in Australia and he rang me up and said, are you free for dinner tomorrow night? And I said, um, sure. And he said, don't you have to check with Catherine? And I said, no, she'll be fine. You, you are Rupert Murdoch. And he said, well, I'd be grateful. And I said, where, when? We agreed on, on arrangements. And uh, so we, we sat down and he, he had a, a, a bottle of champagne there. And he said, uh, right, I believe you like champagne. And um, I said, yes, I do, Rupert, but I won't have a drink, thanks. Um, what do you want to talk about? And he said, um, I want you to take over the business. And um, I said, oh, that's, a, that's not a good idea. I said, uh, who'd be in charge? And he said, well, who do you think would be in charge? And I said, you. And he said, no, no, you'll be in charge. And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> He said, when have I ever interfered in Foxtel? And I said, well, maybe once in the last 10 years, I think. And he said, so? And I said, yeah, but you don't interfere in Foxtel because I turned the business around and frankly, it doesn't really, you know, move your meter. But newspapers really, really get you going. You know, I've got to know you over the years and I've observed you at close quarters often, because, you know, I'd been at the company for 16 years. And um, he said, um, exactly, that's why I want you to take it over. I said, no, it's a terrible decision. Um, <laughs> we had a, an extended discussion. And um, I said, look, I don't mean to seem ungracious. I really don't. And I know for you, this is probably the most precious thing you can offer to someone. He said, it is. And I said, well, <sighs> I think there's going to be tears before bedtime. And uh, he said, don't be ridiculous. He says, best decision I've made in years. And I said, well, I don't seem to be participating in this decision a lot. He said, no, no, we'll negotiate an arrangement. And, Anyway, we did negotiate an arrangement and I spent a lot of time with him that week. And um, I literally started after the, I had a week, I think I had four days off and then I started. Um, and the business needed a lot of attention. And I set about giving it a lot of attention. Um, in fact, I sent, sent a very, very, very I gave personally to Rupert a very long note in early January when I was over in the States seeing him. I'd been over to the um, Consumer Electronics Show. Um, we'd usually met up there each year. Um, Rupert would take out a, a very big suite of rooms in one of the, the hotels there and we would have a number of the leading technologists of, of, of the world really come and present to you know, the top 20 or 30 executives in the company. 
And um, I gave him this note. And we, we were flying in his plane back to, um, to the West Coast. And uh, he said, really? And I said, yeah. Really? And I said, well, that's my diagnosis. And that's what I... You, you learn when you work with someone like Rupert that you don't ask for permission. You keep going. You just keep people very well informed. So I, over a period of the next couple of years, I set about redirecting the business. Um, it created a huge amount of tension with many of the editors who were what could only be regarded as being bomb throwers in the process. And um, many of them, or a small coterie of them, I should say, in fairness, were adamantly opposed to everything I wanted to do. And they hated me. And they hated what I wanted to do. And over time, through a couple of different things, um, I think Rupert found it too hard. Cut a long story short, we got to a moment where I said to Rupert, um, pretty clear to me, one of us has to go. And he said, I'm glad to see you've kept your sense of humour. <laughs> I said, Rupert, I am Australian. If you lose your sense of humour, all is lost. He said, there's no need to be rude, Kim. And I said, Rupert, I'm not being rude. He said, well, you're a good chap. And I said, well, that depends entirely on the quality of my financial separation. <laughs> and um, we, we had a, I mean, we parted, I wouldn't say amicably, but we, 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 we parted professionally. And um, most of my negotiation was with Robert Thompson. Um, and I've moved on, um, as you do. And I, I have moved on completely. I'm, I'm a great believer you, <coughs> one should never look back. You must, must look forward. Always remember from what has happened before. But the period at News Corp was the, the confirmation of my most strongly held view in management, that there is never in life any such thing as a difficult problem. There are only ever difficult people. And, you know, most problems have natural solution paths. Some of them may be quite intricate, but the thing standing in your road is always people. And I, did, I don't think I handled the people issues in the senior editorial ranks appropriately. You know, I'm willing to acknowledge that. Um, mind you, I'd have to say some of the people I dealt with were card-carrying Neanderthals. Um, and I mean that very, very literally. Uh, now, I'm, I'm, I'm the chair of the Reuters Trustees, which I, I love doing, um, which is responsible for the integrity, independence and freedom from bias in all of the services delivered by Reuters News. Um, and I sit on a, a range of other boards. And um, I've um, been able to do a, a bunch of, of things that have been um, a terrific source of, of pleasure and intellectual challenge um, afresh. 
So I've sort of had, you know, multiple careers in many ways. I've been very lucky. And it must be remembered that um, that was the, the most turbulent time in Australian media for, for generations. I remember Fairfax with Greg Highwood at the helm was going under significant staff pressure there. There was cuts, there was protests, there was, you know, you name it there. So that, that decade or, you know, that early part of the 2010s, 2011, 2012, 2013 was, was a period of significant upheaval in the media industry. Let's, let's talk about some of the other roles that you've had held outside of the media. You spent seven years as a commissioner of the AFL from 2014 to 2021. Take me through what it's like sitting on, on the AFL uh, commissioner's committee and, and what are some of the, the key issues that you faced during that time? Oh, it's a great privilege to sit as a member of the Board of Commissioners of the, of, the, of the AFL. I think one of the great strengths of the AFL is that it has an independent commission. Um, and whilst the, the, the AFL is owned by the clubs, the clubs all um, commit to this notion of an independent commission that governs the game, governs it in terms of its, its, its rules, governs it in terms of its, its competitions and, and governs it in terms of its, um, its commercial decision making. Um, and that independence is, 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 is a really important element of the whole operation of the AFL. I was rung by Mike Fitzpatrick in um, 2013. Um, just a couple of months after I'd left News Corp. And Mike said, look, I, I'm looking for um, a new commissioner and I'm, I'm really eager that you consider um, accepting an invitation to, to join the commission. Um, I have to discuss it with a, the subcommittee that has been formed for it, but um, I want to know that you, what, what you'd think about doing that. And I said, I'd be honoured, Mike. I mean, I, I've spent the... Um, the last 15 years really, really embedded in, in AFL things and AFL growth and direction. And in fact, Foxtel had been the, the financial engine for many of the innovations in the AFL. Um, certainly the initiatives with, with GWS and the Gold Coast Suns would, would never have been possible without the money that Foxtel invested in the, in the sport. And he said, well, look, you know, we'd like to have you around the table. Um, I've got to go through a subcommittee, but I'll come back to you. And he came back to me maybe three or four weeks later. And uh, I'd been offered the position as a commissioner actually before the grand final. Um, it wasn't announced then. Um, didn't get announced until, I think, around February uh, of 2014. But it was really, really great honour. And, and, you know, I took it very, very seriously. Um, I think Gil's done an amazing job as the CEO. I think I, I'm, Andrew is someone I have a very, very deep respect for also, and I think Andrew did a, a simply remarkable job as a, as a CEO. Ron Evans was someone I, I'd been very close to. Um, Ron and I used to see quite a bit of each other. Um, when, um, when I was in Melbourne, I'd always... Um, go and see Ron or we'd have a meal together and similarly in Sydney he would always come and visit me. Uh, he, he was a remarkable figure in the AFL's history. So it was a really a great, great privilege. Um, I never took any fees from the AFL. The, the fees went off to, to the Michael Long Centre in, um, in the Northern Territory which um, 
was a, an initiative that was very close to my heart. Um, I'm a lifelong fan of Michael's. I think he's a, an astonishing human being. And what about the 2020 season in particular? You've got COVID that was arriving mid-March. There was uncertainty about whether the season would even go ahead. Eventually it was paused and then did go Look, ahead. that was a very, very memorable season. I, I remember there was one set of three weeks when we must have met seven or eight times. But everyone mucked in. Everyone kept the faith. Everyone respected the confidentiality. Um, I mean, there are some stories that some of us could tell which would, would certainly surprise people. But um, the ship stayed on course. Um, the losses were, while significant, were less severe than we had anticipated. And I think the team at the AFL, the, the executive team, did a simply stellar job, far and away better than any other sporting code in the country in many ways, far and away better than any other enterprise in the country. I think it was exemplary. They, 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 we are blessed in having a sport as well run as, as the AFL is. You know, and Australia being Australia, there are always naysayers. But um, I, I personally think the, the AFL is one of the grand inventions and adornments of our nation. I want to close out our discussion with a few key reflections of yours. Let's discuss deal-making. I want to get your insight into what ingredients are required when you're... or what analysis you did either at Foxtel or at News Corp when you're looking to put together deals. Well, I, I, I've always been an in, in, intensive um, analyst about deal-making. In order to really know how far you're willing to go, you have to have done the work to assess what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. I, I've had some experience, I mean, I suppose the first observation I'd make is that I think that experience is often more a catalogue of failure than a catalogue of success because I think people interrogate failure much more scrupulously and intensely than they interrogate success. Now, a lot of books written about success, and most of them are full of bullshit. Really, ex true experience are all the things that don't go well, and they are the rich learning moments if you take the time to review them and understand them. I've always tried to play a very, very clear hand in a negotiation and in a negotiation I've always tried to understand my opponent or opponents as is sometimes the case because there may be more than one difficult person and to really understand what or to at least have some perception of what they need from a transaction because if they're not going to get what they need you're not going to get what you need and so you spend a lot of time balancing the neat on paper elements of a transaction with the real in life human elements in a transaction. And um, I've, I've tried to do that in a way that is, is always um, reliable and um, as open and, and truthful as possible. You've met some incredible 
titans of industry over your career, Harold Mitchell, David Leckie, Kerry Packer, Rupert Murdoch, Lachlan Murdoch, the, the list goes on. Who stands out to you that you've met that, that was, you know, somebody that you either, not idolised, but that somebody that, that just came across as, as an incredible figure? Oh, I, I've met many. I mean, I've had a very, very privileged life. Um, and met many, many simply astonishing human beings. I think probably some of the, the really most impressive people I've met have been people that are more on the creative side of life uh, and the ones that I'm, I'm most indelibly impressed by are people like the, the, the great British um, theatre director, um, Jonathan Miller. I mean, he was a simply awesome individual. Um, some of the some of the conductors I've met over the years, who are simply people of another dimension. Simon Rattle, who was the principal conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic for a number of years, is a a simply awe-inspiring individual of of such character and such such remarkable integrity and 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 and, and such such confident individuality. I mean, he's an amazing musician. Ricardo Chailly, the great Italian conductor, was someone I knew quite well. And he did a remarkable, remarkable job as a, as a young man in a country where it's very hard to, to break out and, and excel because you have this weight of history on your, on, on your shoulders. There are many ensembles that I've got to know over the years that, that really really impressed me. And then there, 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 there are people that, that you look at, some of the coaches I've met in the AFL are people that I'm, I'm absolutely in awe of. Their, their, their capacity to, to hold it together and to drive good outcomes are really, really Remark remarkable moments in life, and some of the politicians I've met, I'm in in awe of. Um, Paul Keating is someone that I've, I admire a great deal because so often in, politi in politics you meet politicians who are diminished people in that they crave human endorsement and they crave they crave applause and they whereas. Keating was in a position where he did what he considered had to be done and dealing with people in that process was one where his job he regarded as was being to persuade you of the correctness of his view and that's a very precious thing to encounter and you know I had the good fortune to encounter it repeatedly and sometimes remarkably forcefully and it, it, it really does impress itself upon you. Um, he, he, he was, in fact, he's probably the singly most interesting, outstanding person, I think, that I've, I've dealt closely with. Oh, there are too many names to go into. From your perspective, what are the, the key skills that business leaders need in today's age? Uh, I think integrity is non-negotiable. 
um, something politicians of the current era could well remember. Um, and some of them have fine integrity, but too few. I think imagination is tremendously important and never, never, ever, ever underestimate the importance of imagination. I, I think imagination is, is, is in fact fundamental to small and comparatively vulnerable nations like Australia and their future. In fact, I personally am very firmly of the view that the crucible of Australia's future reposes in the intellectual capacity and capability and the creativity of Australia's people. And that it is the duty of, of parliaments to ensure that there is proper nourishment of, of the minds and hearts of Australians through investing in the intellectual capacity and the creative capacity of the nation. Australians are very, very resourceful people. But I, I find the lack of priority accorded to intellect and creativity alarming because it takes us back. You know, our education performance is, is, is slipping so seriously badly. Um, so I, I, imagination is something I would never, ever um, underestimate as, as being a quality in, 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 in real leadership. The, the other element of, of leadership that is terribly important, I think, is a very simple aphorism that I've used many times. If you don't know your destination, you'll get lost and run out of provisions. Know what you want to achieve. Keep on focusing on it. Get there. And never, ever let the perfect be the enemy of the good. If you know where you're going, get there, and things that haven't gone quite according to plan, well, fix them up, but keep on going. Target, always target, know where you're going. Too many people are busy being busy. They're not busy being productive. That's enough of my pompous wisdom. <laughs> Brilliant advice. Final question, what, 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 what's next for Kim Williams? What are the projects that you've got on the horizon? I've got a few things I'm working on. I'm, I'm, um, I'm going to do a bit, of, um, a bit more writing. Um, I've um, been writing a few little essays here and there, and I intend to um, upweight my effort in that area. Um, I intend for the last three years of my, my chairmanship of Reuters to be very productive, um, and I certainly in, in, intend to ensure that the... Um, that the editor-in-chief and the, and the president of, of Reuters are properly supported in their roles. I, I think we're, we're blessed in having a service like that for the world. Um, and I intend to, um, to ensure that I, um, I read a lot more um, and that I, um, I derive you know, constant stimulation from that. I'd also like to revisit my Italian language skills. <laughs> Kim Williams, AM, absolute pleasure having you as part of the series. Look forward to hearing about the next chapter and, and seeing the next chapter over the coming years ahead. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Rob.